Incoming transmission from an unknown source. It seems to be urgent. Patching them through. They're calling themselves the Holonet Marauders. Welcome back to the Holonet Marauders podcast. Now, this week is that weird week of the year in which no one knows what day it is. And that's pretty much how, like, the entire year has gone. But you, you know the feeling. The day after Christmas and right before New Year's, you have no idea what day of the week it is, what's going on. But we're going to get through it. So with this episode, we wanted to go over a few of a few different kind of things. Uh, things that we got for the holidays. Uh, a few questions from you guys, and then also our favorite Star Wars things from 2020. Because even though there wasn't any film releases this year, we did get a ton of content, and we want to share all of our favorite things with you guys. This is Jamie, and I'm here this week again, as always, with AJ and Matt. So guys, let's get started. Let's kick off with what we got for Christmas, and what our favorite holiday presents were that we received this year. I got a lightsaber. Yeah, my... my uh... Star Wars Hall was pretty it was pretty good this year. I got the Ben Solo lightsaber from Galaxy's Edge, which was probably my most coveted lightsaber from Galaxy's Edge from Savvy's Workshop in terms of like all the models. That was definitely the most sought after and definitely the one of the most rare of the bunch. Like you can never find that when you go to Galaxy's Edge. You can never find that at the store. So for them to have like posted it and for me to actually get one online was pretty uh, pretty great. And thank you, AJ, because you were the one who told me about it. On Thanksgiving. Yeah, literally. On Thanksgiving. Literally on Thanksgiving dinner, um, AJ found out from another friend of ours that the website was selling the Ben Solo lightsabers, and he's sitting there like at the end of Thanksgiving dinner just uh, ordering the lightsaber. So he also got one of those unofficially, officially for holiday. Shout out to <laughs> Meg Callahan. Uh, what else? I got a Boba Fett lamp which is his helmet, but it's like you can mount it on your wall and it lights up and it goes on a little timer and the visor turns red. And I got that from my uncle because, and I quote, you really like the Mandalorian and Boba Fett dresses like a Mandalorian. <laughs> wow. Uh, I got a Mando shirt. Uh, every year my household has a Star Wars themed calendar and this has been going on since like 2015. So this year it's Baby Yoda. So every single every single month we'll have a Baby Yoda picture. Does he have the cookies in one of them? He, I, he probably does. Okay, okay. And I think it's really funny too because like the last episode of Mando, Grogu leaves and my mom is like devastated. And now every time she sees Grogu, she gets like a little sad and she bought the Grogu calendar. So now every every day when she looks at the calendar, she could be a little sad in 2021. I got a Han Solo mug and I got a new Star Wars toothbrush. Thank you, Santa. What's on the toothbrush? Uh, BB-8. I got a Kylo toothbrush like five years ago, but I liked it so much I never opened it. I kept it in this package so I could look at it like an idiot. 2021, there needs to be a toothbrush that looks like a gaffy stick. Yes! yes! They need to do that! Holy crap. So, yeah. Hasbro or Colgate or Crest or whoever makes those. Uh, They're definitely listening. Get on that. So, I didn't get a ton of Star Wars stuff this year because, I mean, I already have a ton of stuff. But I got a nice looking Purge Trooper from Jedi Fallen Order that Jamie got me. And it's a fine addition to my collection. And now I need to get a cow, which is kind of hard to find now. They're just expensive now uh, to put with them. And that would be a nice little dual scene, I guess. 
I got this Sith beanie. It's a little black beanie that says Sith in red lettering. And it kind of looks like ancient lettering, I guess, uh, from Padawan pins. So shout out to those guys. It's a great beanie. That was also from Jamie as a gift. And she got one that said Jedi for herself. Yeah, it was an unintentional matching situation. Like, AJ and I aren't the kind of couple that will go out of our way to, like, match. We, like, never match. Like, I think it's kind of weird. But in this one sense, I was like, you know what? I'm getting the respective uh, beanies here. <laughs> right, and it works. And then I got the um, Empire Strikes Back from a certain point of view short story book because I love short stories. And, I mean, the, the A New Hope one was awesome. And... Reading some of these ones, it's you know I think it's better than the other one, and uh, I can't wait to go watch Empire Strikes Back after I've read all these stories because it adds a little bit to each character. Like uh, the guy that walks between Han and Leia, we were just talking about him. He has a story, and who else? Will Rohood has a story of where he's going with the the Camtono, and you know many others. It's it's a fun read. And that's all I got, and some coal. <laughs> Uh, for Star Wars stuff this year, I got pretty much these uh, smaller uh, independent maker type things, and so one of the biggest things that I collect for Star Wars merch is uh, pins. Anything with enamel pins is usually what I go for. So I looked into two of my favorite pin shops, and I, I requested specific pins for my collection because it's to the point where I will most likely have that one unless it's a new release. But I got a handful of pins from Lantern Pins and then also Punch It Chewy Press. They're two of my favorite pin makers. Um, the Lantern Pins are more so... She has this uh, line of pins that's uh, Star Wars ladies, but just like their hairstyles. Um, and so I have a ton of those, so I have ones that's just like the Ray buns, that's the Princess Leia buns, the Padme headdress, and I've already had those ones. But one new one that she released this year was the Twi'lek headtails. And so I already had um, Hera, and then this year she released uh, Ula from Return of the Jedi, who's just like the slave dancer in Jabba's palace. Which was really cool just to like even see. And so I was like, oh that's one that I really wanted, and AJ's like, alright, so I got that one. <laughs> and then, um... A couple other just like cute little ones from her, and then the Punch It Chewy Press ones, they released a line that was Galaxy's Edge themed, and so I got like blue and green milk and DJ Rex, which was like really cool to see. I, I love all the Galaxy's Edge stuff, even though I've still never been to Galaxy's Edge. I still just like love like all like the lore around it. And then speaking of Galaxy's Edge, my favorite Star Wars thing that I received for Christmas this year was from my friend Sam. Uh, she went out of her way to get me the Droid Depot version of CB23, which was the recent, like, exclusive thing just to, uh, get, just, just to wear, just to Galaxy's Edge. Um, you guys can't see it in the podcast right now, but I'm holding it up just so, like, the guys can see it. And they've already seen it, like, a million times, but I just wanted to, like, play, like, the noises. There she is. AJ actually got me like the small little figurine earlier in the Christmas season. We're the, anytime a package arrives at our house, one of us is like on it immediately and neither of us can keep a secret in that sense. And so most of our presents were already given to each other. But like I said, um, my friend Sam got this for me. So it was able to really just like be a secret. And it, oh, CB just makes me so happy. It's just so silly. Uh, CB23 is the BB unit droid from Star Wars Resistance which obviously didn't do so hot as everyone wanted it to do, and it was more just like a kid's animated show, but CB23 literally carried the show, and I will stand on that hill. Flew with Poe. It's a pretty big deal for a little while, at least. She did. Yeah. Before they swapped yeah, off. Sure. Okay, so moving on from our holiday presents, I'd like to jump into our quick little Q&As that we received from listeners. So we've received a handful of questions, and we will talk about a few of them here today. So let's see. First one that I wanted to cover was... How about this one? 
What's a scene in each trilogy that doesn't get enough recognition? Hmm. So should we do this? Uh, we each talk about the prequels, then the originals, then the sequels, right? Yeah, if you want to. Yeah, that works. I would say my prequel answer actually comes from a conversation I had on Reddit like two or three weeks ago, which I actually found pretty baffling because it was on the subreddit prequel memes, which anybody on the internet knows. Prequel memes is like one of the largest Star Wars Reddit communities. They love the prequels, if you didn't, if you couldn't guess from the title. Um, but something that perplexed me was that I actually got into a discussion with uh, a group of people about the Gungan scene at the end of The Phantom Menace, the Gungans against the droids. Now, I was actually pretty surprised because a lot of people find a lot of merit in a lot of things that didn't originally receive merit about the prequels in this community. Um, but it seems like most of the people on prequel memes do not like that scene, do not like the Gungans against the droids, or do not even understand the purpose of that battle. And I think it's incredibly important because it plays into the theme that George Lucas carries over in almost every movie, but especially in the original and the prequel trilogy, it is nature versus technology. That is like one of the foundational themes of Star Wars. It's incredibly important. Um, the Ewoks served kind of the thesis for technology versus nature in the original trilogy. You had, of course, the Ewoks being the, you know, plucky natives who take on the big industrious uh, empire and take them down with just sticks and spears. Um, but the Gungans serve an even more on-the-nose purpose because they are literally fighting robots. You can't get any more nature versus technology than organic beings with organic technology facing off against literal droids with, like, droid tanks and stuff. So, personally, I really like this battle. I used to love it when I was a kid. I used to love seeing the giant, uh, you know, creatures with the shields and, you know, all the Gungans running around with their little blue balls. What are they called? Boomers? <laughs> uh, boomers? I don't have a boomer. But I don't have a boomer. And, of course, uh, Jar Jar being a bombad uh, general. Um, uh, yeah. But this this scene is incredibly important. It plays into, like, you know, ring theory. People talk about how the prequels and the originals, and I add the sequels, they all mirror each other. So what happens in Return of the Jedi is mirrored in The Phantom Menace. It goes, like, reverse order. So you have the same kind of battle. The Ewoks versus the Empire, the Gungans versus the droids. It is integral to the one of the most important themes that George Lucas puts in these films. So that's why I chose that one. So for my prequel underrated scene, I went with Dex's Diner and Attack of the Clones. Yes. Um, that's always that's always been a, a favorite scene of mine because I mean it's it's funny like Obi Wan going to a, a diner in the middle of Coruscant, and it's actually I mean in Attack of the Clones you get to see a lot of Coruscant in general. They go to the nightclub at the beginning with Sam Wessel, which is a cool scene, and then. Obi-Wan goes to Coruscant because he knows Dex would, you know, be able to track down this dart. And in a deleted scene, you know, droids aren't able to detect where the the dart was from. And Obi-Wan's having trouble. And Dex is an expert, of course, on this uh, after being, was he like a a miner on Subterrell? What was he was he? a prospector on Subterrell. Prospector, okay. So it's just this scene alone gives you like, gives Coruscant a character. And uh, I think that's something Matt has complained about. Maybe, you know, people love Coruscant, but we don't, we don't see a lot of it. 
maybe and in the diner alone you know there's a lot going on in the background there's kind of like the the waitress putting the tip like in between her cleavage and you know the java juice like what is that is that coffee is that booze i don't know it's it's such a cool scene and it's it's perfect star wars it's it's the prequels cantina scene and i love that it's fun i i just i love dex's diner i'm just sitting here giggling about that and i'm like how could i possibly follow dex's diner okay so I'm going to follow that with my favorite prequel scene is from The Phantom Menace when Darth Maul just appears out of nowhere and Qui-Gon just straight up just starts fighting him. They have no idea who they are. It's just like, no, it's just immediate, just right in the action. Hasn't seen a Sith Lord in like a thousand years and all of a sudden, there it is. I, I always like to refer to it as the realist beef because Qui-Gon and Darth Maul obviously have never met each other and all of a sudden, they're immediate enemies. It's be- is it because of the lightsabers? Maybe. It's just like, it's something... That gets me every single time. I'm just like, oh, here it comes, here it comes. Anakin, drop! Lightsabers. It's fantastic. Like, Qui-Gon's one of my favorite characters of the entire uh, series. And it's just funny to, like, witness this entire scene of this is the first time we've ever seen a Sith Lord. And then it's immediately followed by the scene of Obi-Wan and Anakin meeting for the first time. And it's just, like, such a casual, like, Anakin Skywalker, meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. Hello. It's just like, okay. It's <laughs> it's such a cute little scene. And The Phantom Menace just holds that special place in my heart. So I, I had to pick this epic scene of actual action bleeding into a really wholesome scene. I agree with both of yours. I think it's absolutely hilarious how casual Qui-Gon uh, just acts. He's meeting a Sith Lord for the first time. They were supposed to be extinct for a thousand years. One just comes up on a speeder bike. And Qui-Gon's like, hey, Anakin, duck. All right, now I'm going to yeah, fight this guy. Yeah. Then he leaps onto the ship, and then Obi-Wan's like, what was that? And Qui-Gon's like, I think that was a Sith. And it's like, wait, wait a minute. What? <laughs> What's going on here, guys? It's, it's, it's unreal. It's just, it's just perfect. Yeah. It's perfect, Qui-Gon. It's so casual. It's great. So let's move on to the original trilogy. Matt, what is your most underrated or seen deserving and the most recognition in the OT? So... I'm going to say that this, I mean, this is kind of underrated because I've seen a lot of criticisms of this scene or this part of the movie, even though, you know, I grew up loving this scene. It's the Jabba's Palace in Return of the Jedi. Now, I know Jabba's Palace is like an iconic scene in Return of the Jedi, but I know also a lot of criticisms levied at Return of the Jedi in this scene in particular is that it really doesn't have much of a bearing on the overall plot of the movie and it kind of brings everything to a halt. And I can kind of agree with that because it's such an exciting, rousing opening. And then everything kind of just like slows down to a crawl. And there's like no action for another like 40 minutes after. I loved the scene when I was a kid and only very recently learned about how many people complain about uh, Jabba's Palace just not really tying into the overall plot and feeling almost like a side adventure. But personally, I love that about it. I actually love the feeling of like this kind of side side adventure for our characters we see you know how luke progressed over the year that we he's been gone we see the team kind of you know especially lando being part of the crew now we see how they all kind of rallied around han being frozen and taken away and we see how they work together as a team which is something that we don't really get to see in empire strikes back at all really or in any well we see it on the death star so it's kind of like the first time we see it since the death star and we've seen like how well their plans have uh, advanced. Apparently not very well. Um, but still, no, I, I... Jabba's Palace, the amount of time and effort that goes into each and every background alien, the amount of time and effort that goes into Jabba the Hutt, 
the puppetry and the animatronics and just, you know, the amount of people stuffed inside that Jabba the Hutt suit for crying out loud. You have like a tongue operator and the arms and the tail operator. And you had these people with these big, you know, uh, monitors on their chests trying to look at what everything looked like on the outside just so that they could do the scene. It's incredibly impressive. The technological uh, marvel that is... Jabba's palace should really be the crowning achievement of um, Return of the Jedi, in my opinion, at least. It's a good one to choose because from now on it might get more recognition because of the the ending of Mando season two, the after credit scene, and you know Book of Boba Fett. Yeah, exactly. So now we get like a direct tie-in to that part of the movie. So my choice for underrated scene in the original trilogy was it's not. I guess it's a scene, but I mean mostly everything that happens on the the Lars homestead, like Aunt Beru throwing lettuce into a blender. Like, what is she making? And then later on, I just find it funny when R2 takes off and Luke's looking for all of them. And 3PO is literally, he's hiding behind like the, the family Mercedes there or the, this, whatever speeder that is. <laughs> it kind of looks like the one in Tross with the, the Sith emblem. But, you know, for a while, I always thought he was hiding, but it kind of looks like he's maybe like trying to hotwire it to steal it and go look for R2. <laughs> so who knows what he's doing? And the fact that 3PO you know however many years earlier than this he was that was his home like because uh, he went with Shmi Skywalker there and lived there for a while and served the 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 Lars family and he, he obviously had his memory wiped but to, to Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru remember him or not or I don't know because I mean all that happened I mean all the protocol droids kind of look the same right but he was painted gold instead of silver so it's um it's a fun it's fun any scene on on the Beru or the Beru farm the Lars homestead there. Yeah, that's actually a good question. I never thought of that. We discussed earlier about how like C-3PO forgot everything because he got his memory wiped, but did they, like how long was 3PO at the Lars homestead? Probably like 10 years, maybe a little less considering when Watto says he yeah. sold Shmi. They would have known C-3PO by name and then to have him introduce himself from the Jawas and be like, hey, I'm C-3PO and Uncle Owen just like, okay, like, wait a minute. <laughs> I feel like that should get more <laughs> recognition. I didn't even thought of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm always a I'm always a firm believer that 3PO was over there hiding. He wasn't going. He would love to go after R2, but he was hiding. He's such a little coward. Like, come on. He he was hiding from Luke. What was he? What could he have been hiding from? He was, I guess, worried that Luke would have punished them. I don't I don't know. Even though Luke obviously wouldn't <laughs> punish like a fly, but it that was like always like my mm-hmm. feeling. There it was R2 ran away, and 3PO was like, oh no, not again, and then just hiding. <laughs> For me, my favorite underrated scene in the original trilogy is when Yoda is cooking dinner for Luke on Dagobah. Oh yeah, I, I just love that mm. entire scene. Well, the, the whole the whole business of like Yoda meeting Luke that obviously is like a really loved scene overall. But I I love Luke sitting in Yoda's hut and hitting his head on the ceiling and R2 just peeking through the window and it's raining outside and it's just like please just let the droid in but like they never let him in and and the stew is just fantastic because Luke's looking at it like I, I don't know if I should eat this is this all right and then he just pretty much just gives a shrug and it's just like oh, whatever and then Yoda's like good soup very good soup and it's it's just another one of those like super silly scenes but it's one that I think is super underrated because of the soup yeah, the soup for sure. All those croutons that uh, that Luke pours into the soup, like he crushes all this bread and like puts it in there, and he's like, "Ugh, yeah. it's disgusting." But he's too polite, you know. He's he's polite. He doesn't tell Yoda that it's disgusting. 
I think we can all kind of relate with that scene maybe a bit too. There's the, you know, like the parent or grandparent that's like, come on, eat, eat. You know, you got to eat your old skin and bones. Like, how'd you get this big doing this? And it's, uh, I don't know. It's perfect Yoda. It's how do you great. get this size eating food of this kind? Eating Tic Tacs. Yeah, eating Tic Tacs and, and pretzel sticks, breadsticks, whatever. Mmm, <laughs> yum. So, let's move on to sequel trilogy. Last bit of underrated scenes. Uh, what are our favorite underrated scenes from the sequel trilogy? Oh, boy. Uh, time to be a little predictable here. Uh, I'm going to pick the... One scene that I know everybody who knows me uh, knows that I would pick, and that is Canto Bite. Canto Bite is so underrated, uh, not just as a scene, but as a setting in general. Cantonica and Canto Bite is such a cool setting, but the scene itself is great. I absolutely love the production design that went into this. This is another kind of uh, Jabba's Palace syndrome, where you just see the amount of work that goes into every single alien in the background, and I just can't get enough of it. You know, AJ mentioned... Dex's diner being like the cantina scene of the prequels, and I agree. Um, and it seems like the sequel trilogy kind of tried to go out of its way to create a cantina scene for each episode. And I would argue that Canto Bite is the cantina scene. Yeah, it definitely is. There's no other scene that would even remotely uh, constitute as that. And I think they do a phenomenal job. I love uh, Finn and Rose uh, running around kind of exploring. I actually really like the fact that they uh, illegally parked and got arrested for that because it it actually plays into something. You actually see like how this place treats poor people or treats, you know, the the ratty, you know, undesirables. They, you park in the wrong place and you get shocked and sent to, to jail for crying out loud. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's and I just, you know, I love Mark Hamill's cameo and the setting of Canto Bite. Um, being like space Monte Carlo is just such a cool concept. It's such a cool idea. But recently I've just developed a whole new appreciation for this setting um, because of how well it ties in with the Cold War, which uh, came right before um, the sequel era, which uh, 27 BBY to 34, 27 ABY to 34 ABY, like right before the Hosnian Cataclysm is when the Cold War happens between the First Order and the, Res the Resistance. And, it, you know, it's just really cool exploring Canto Bite as a setting because you see these arm, de these arm deals happening in the shadows and you see, like, you know, countesses and, baron countesses and barons and all these different people, like, uh, you know, trading arms and betting on who's going to win the upcoming war. And it's just definitely reminiscent of James Bond. Um, and if you, if again, if you couldn't get any more overt, uh, the Codebreaker is literally dressed in a costume reminiscent of James Bond with the, the all white tux with the red flower. Um, you could, you know, you can't get any more on the nose than that, but it's uh, the Canto bite spy intrigue angle that they went for during the cold war. And then into the sequels is just, a really cool piece of Star Wars lore that a lot of people overlook. What I uh, what I like about your picks, Matt, for you know, you chose Jabba's Palace and then Canto Bite. It really shows, um, you know, I guess what line of work you're from because though you working in the film business and whatnot, because um, those two scenes probably took the most production and set work and so much, you know, all that work that went into that in those movies and they're not very recognized, you know. Definitely. Everyone complains about Canto Bite and people, you know, Jabba's Palace is cool, but everyone thinks about the Death Star later and whatnot. But all the most of the work in those movies is on those two scenes, so that, that's uh, very fitting of you. 
So for my underrated sequel scene, I chose uh, a simple scene, but it's it's perfect in my mind. And we just rewatched Last Jedi the other day, so it came up again. And that's when Ray and Luke are talking to each other in the I don't want to call it the cave because people get that confused with the dark side cave, maybe. But the little before, right before the cliff, the cave there with the the circle logo on the floor, the yin yang type thing. Yeah. Um, and Ray and Luke are talking about the pretty much the past. They're talking about the prequel Jedi and how they they fell, and we've we've talked about that before and how great that is and how uh, they were sort of ignorant and the Palpatine rose beneath them and took over and they talk about Han and Leia and Ben and how Luke wanted to um, not raise Ben teach Ben the Jedi ways and whatnot and I love the line Han was Han about it that's because we, we can all just we know what exactly what he's talking about we can picture Han just being like yeah whatever Jedi uh, mumbo jumbo <laughs> and um, it's just such a it's such a small thing but I think it's one of the most perfect scenes in the sequels and not many people talk about it because you, you hear people not talk about it, the sequels don't talk about the prequels as, as that much, but I think it's right there. It's right. You just have to listen to that scene and they pretty much explain the whole um, prequel story arc in almost like a sentence or two. And I think it's awesome. Definitely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thanks. So so for me, the scene that deserves the most recognition in this case is the entire sequence on Pisana of the Festival of the Ancestors. So just seeing a desert come to life is something incredibly magical. Because every time we have visited a desert in Star Wars, it's been a desolate wasteland. And it's something that's so important for Rey's character as well, just to see that even though this is a desert where there's barely like any life, it seems... These people are making the best out of it every 42 years, but they are making the best out of it by having this giant celebration. It goes back as well, like what you mentioned earlier, AJ, with there, there was so much production that went into this scene alone. Like, we were watching the behind the scenes of Rise of Skywalker, and they had the entire, like, dance, like, choreographed for, like, the Aki Aki to do, and they had, like, the song ready to go and everything for the pre-production, so that way they could be actually doing, like, the proper, like, dance moves, like, during it. And then there's just so much going on with the actual, like, background characters, not just, like, the Aki Aki aliens, and then also other different, like, species from, like, across the galaxy, ones we've seen before, then, of course, like, brand new sequel trilogy aliens, which we're always getting so many more of. And then we get, we're, we're blessed with Dio later on, just, like, in the sands of Pasana, and, like, I absolutely love Dio. But this isn't about him, it's, it's really just about the whole, the festival within that Forbidden Valley on Pasana, and... Yeah, it's just it's just so good. It's just a really underrated scene, I feel, because it gives Rey so much actual hope for the galaxy that even though it's not something that she had when she was young, it is something that people experience uh, this joyous life within the desert. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. And I just as you were talking, I thought about, you know, Rey's from a desert planet, too. And it was kind of a, a miserable desert planet. But, you know, this this is, a you know, also a desert planet. And we see the, the beauty of and the colors and the. Yeah. Uh, I just love the fireworks that are going off in the scene and just the, all the different colors and the dance and yeah. the little puppet show for the kids and it's cool. There's so much going on at once like with like that scene alone because like we have the fireworks going off and there's the very quick shot of BB-8 looking very closely at the canister and then he does later on puncture it um, just to like cause that diversion and Ray's just like, oh, right, we should be doing that. And so there's so much just like packed in in this scene alone and it's just very cool to see. And that that is... at 
almost it might be like one of the times you see Ray at her happiest. She has the biggest smile on her face, like when they first like discover like the sequence and they're walking through the party, and it's it's just a lot of fun. It's it's a very fun scene. So, let's move on to uh, another question, because this is actually a Q&A section. We're not just talking about our favorite underrated scenes uh, in the movies. So, uh, next question we received from a listener was, what is each podcaster's favorite Star Wars era, and why? This one hurt my brain, uh, because I'd actually... It's so funny, you know, I, I love to separate the Skywalker saga into different eras, and I love to separate just Star Wars in general into different eras, but I've never actually thought about which one would be my favorite was my favorite, you know, which one do I love hearing stories about and diving into? You know, I gave some thought on this and I think I found the perfect answer for myself and it would be the New Republic era. AJ, did you have that one? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's we okay. probably should have just we'll both both talk about it together. You can both yeah. pick it. No, that's, I, I like it. I like it. So all the way back in October when Squadrons first came out, um, I remember having a long discussion with AJ about how I was like really getting into the New Republic era and I loved like the explorations that they seemed to be going into. Uh, and this was before Mandalorian Season 2 came out and like completely blew the lid off of the New Republic era. Um, this was when like Squadrons was the big thing and I was like, whoa, Squadrons, is, this is amazing, world building. But I just loved, I love how everything ties together right now. Every single story ties into the Aftermath trilogy, which ties into the sequel trilogy. And I think that's why The New Republic is my favorite, because you have the original trilogy aesthetics and like the world of the original trilogy, but it's building towards the sequel trilogy. So you have sequel aliens, you have sequel concepts and ideas, and they're kind of like blending together really well in the middle. Uh, and I also just really like where Luke is in the New Republic in terms of, you know, he spends 10 years scouring the galaxy searching for ancient relics he compiles the sacred jedi texts that have been lost for generations he goes on all of these cool adventures that are chronicled in the legends of luke skywalker you know and then he picks up grogu uh which is actually right in the middle of his exploration so he has no temple when he picks up grogu just wanted to throw that out there just because that was on the on my mind but then he starts his you know he settles down with ben and he starts the jedi temple and you know all of that happens and then the Jedi Temple burns right when the Cold War starts and the you know centrists and the populists in the Senate are fighting each other and the centrists drop out to form uh, you know the First Order and on Coruscant and other core worlds and it's like then you have years of this kind of like tension in the galaxy and that's like so cool like it's I feel like this era is incredibly dynamic a lot of a lot of people don't because the aftermath books kind of set up uh, a lot of like quiet like everything's quiet 30 years of no big conflicts, but they can get around that by setting things in the Outer Rim outside of the New Republic's jurisdiction, which it seems like they're doing. Um, and obviously the possibilities are absolutely endless with the amount of shows we're getting and content that's going to be uh, linking together. I, I'm just, you know, totally looking forward to, to this era being more expanded, but I'm already in love with it. Yeah, I also chose the New Republic era um, pretty much for all the reasons Matt just listed, but I don't know if it's a recency bias thing or what, because we're getting all content in this era now, and it might be, but it just the mystery around the era too fascinates me, because um, it's kind of an untouched, there's a lot of area to cover still, and, um, you know, Mando's getting there, 
and all the things Matt just mentioned about Luke are so interesting. And um, I think the the idea Matt mentioned also the there's a lot of quiet, but I think that makes it interesting. Like the, what's brewing out there, and that just that piques my interest of um, the possibilities that they could go with in the in the New Republic era. I almost said High Republic, but again by accident. We still don't know anything about the High Republic. <laughs> Not yet. Maybe in like two weeks. Yeah, I would have picked High Republic if you know. I had actually read any content from the High Republic. I'm already so excited about the High Republic. It could already <laughs> constitute as my favorite era, and I haven't seen a single thing <laughs> from it yet. <laughs> so I was going to pick the New Republic, since that's what got me into Star Wars, And um, but I knew that both of you were going to choose it, <laughs> even though you didn't talk about it to each other. I knew that you both were going to pick it anyway. My favorite era is not that era, though. It's one that I have found myself diving into really heavily, and it is the undefined era of post-Order 66 in the early days of the Empire. Something that we haven't seen covered in the films, aside from a little bit in Solo, and then towards the end with, like, Rogue One. But it's it's my favorite era because it really just gives... We, we don't know what's going on. We still don't really have a solid understanding of what's going on. I I really was, like, drawn to it in the first place because of... I love like exploring more into just like world building for characters in general. The whole idea that there was more than just like the very few handful of Order 66 survivors has always intrigued me, that there was always more. And that idea alone has always just prompted me to just research as much as possible into the post-Order 66 era. And that's why I'm so excited for the Bad Batch. That's why I love Jedi Fallen Order so much, because they are set within those like different uh within that same timeline it's just a a time of almost it feels like absolute lawlessness but at the same time we're getting that absolute rule from the early days of the empire as well learning more about the foundation of the empire is something that i really want to dive into more which is interesting because i kind of have no interest in the empire itself like when it's it's at its height i just want to know more about like the foundation of it so it's it's one of those things where like I worked myself into this rabbit hole of research of this era and it's been built up to myself for being something that's absolutely incredible and that's like why it's my favorite era. So we might not have as much content as we do with like all of the others, but this in-between era is is my favorite one because yet again, I have dived way too deep into something and I'm just, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, I think Fallen Order is a perfect representation of that era. Oh yeah. Right? yeah. For me in these kind of things, it's cool to see the, Republican gunships kind of just trash somewhere and yeah. with em- empire ships coming in. It's cool to see those eras blend together. And, uh, you know, Bad Batch will be there with that, with, yeah. with the, those eras combining as well. Kenobi show will probably also be a pretty mm-hmm. big uh, showcase of this era. Ooh, yeah. We're going to get that, you know, first. We have Solo, which was live action, but I think Kenobi is going to dive deeper into... And it's, I think... I don't know if this is a fan term or it's the official term, but I've heard the dark times being the like quote unquote official unofficial descriptor for this um, period of time. Well, that's what Obi-Wan refers to it in A New Hope exactly. before the dark times. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, the dark times could just be considered the time of the Empire rising. I mean, if anything, I would just call it like early Imperial, maybe is what like they might refer to it as. But at the same time, it seems like they always refer to it as whatever the good guy side is. So Age of Rebellion, Age of Republic, right. Age of Resistance. So we don't know who the good guys really are in this sense. I don't think there are any good guys, really, it seems. Not yet. 
I get well, we're gonna get more of that in Cassian for sure, or sorry, Andor. It seems we all chose appropriate er- eras because um, a lot of the content coming out will be in both of those eras. Yeah, so yeah, that's good. Two transitional eras, both with a lot of content on the horizon. It's perfect. So we do have another question from Q and A to answer as well. So this question was, what are your thoughts about Alan Dean Foster and his Finn and Ray uh, information? Yeah, okay. So Alan Dean Foster, author of the original Star Wars novelization from 1976 and Splinter the Mind's Eye from 1977 or 78. I forget when that came out. He's like one of the OG Star Wars authors. And he came. He did the Force Awakens um, novelization. And the, the revelation that he came out with recently in an interview that I don't want to get too much into, but we'll talk about this part, um, is that he was asked to remove uh, some insinuations towards a Finn Ray romance. And I think, you know, there were hints of it in the movie. I think they could go... They set it up pretty nebulously either way, so it could go either way. I think an actual, like, confirmation that Disney went out of their way to say, like, hey, you know, let's, let's slow it down with the Finn and Ray romance stuff. I actually think... Um, is a good indication that they had some kind of plan for Rey and Kylo instead. That, you know, at least with the sequels, Rey and Kylo's path was mapped out and, you know, they were linked together from the very beginning. So when I saw Force Awakens, um, I definitely got the vibe of a romance between Finn and Rey um, upon my first viewings because... Uh, Finn seemed interested in Ray with the whole you got a you got a cute boyfriend or whatever, and you know he was curious about what her situation was, and you know later on Ray kisses Finn on the forehead and says I'll see you again. I mean that could be not romantic, and we also see Finn give his jacket to Ray, which is a very like boyfriendy thing to do. But I could just be being a gentleman and be like, oh, she's barely wearing anything on a snow planet. Let me give her a jacket, but um. Yeah, I, d- I definitely thought they were going to be a romance, and I thought it would have been a pretty... I thought it would have been a good thing. I don't want the Raylos to kill me for that. With Ray and Kylo, there began a like fan fiction thing between TFA and TLJ, and I never really saw it in the movies as much. I thought they might have just been kind of passionate and connected with each other because of the Force, not romantically. And then in TLJ, they definitely there was a lot of uh, intimacy there. You could argue there's more intimacy when they touch hands than they do when they kiss and trust, but um, the relationship began there, and I wasn't against it, and uh, I thought it worked out. I think that based on the events in The Force Awakens, there could have been a romance between Finn and Rey, and it could have worked. It's just interesting that this information has come out recently that Disney straight up was just like, uh, we don't want you to put that in the novelization. So historically as well, with the novelization of the movies, there's always been different authors than there were screenwriters of the movies, which is an interesting take, in my opinion, that they would even be having other authors do this. And so it's just adding more people to the creative process overall that have their hands in the story. So I guess, in in a sense, the novelizations are almost glorified fan fictions of the novels. It's just one interpretation of the events of the movies because the authors are just given the movie and definitely more background information like as well from the creative team and they're just like, have at it. And that's that's what we're just given as that's what the official thing is. I think that it should be taken with a grain of salt here that we don't 
this is just this was just his interpretation in the first place. So I I believe that there was like they had an overarching plan from the beginning. It just wasn't clearly communicated amongst everyone involved with that creative process, which is a little bit frustrating. It's just something very frustrating with the sequels in general is that I'd like to believe that they had a plan from the beginning of what they wanted the entire story to be. And I'm pretty sure that they did, but they just weren't always effective at communicating that plan and executing it across all three movies. And so it, it makes it like all a little bit disjointed. Because think about also Finn's path in The Last Jedi. He doesn't do much, which is very frustrating because they also set up in The Force Awakens that he's Force-sensitive. And that's something that I really, really wish that they acted on. And it's something that they definitely could have pushed for in The Last Jedi. If it was anything, they could have definitely had Rey wait at the end of The Force Awakens and then go to find Luke, and then they both could have learned about the Jedi. That would have been something absolutely incredible, and it would have changed the total course of the movies. And even towards the end, it could have even still set up an eventual endgame romance between Rey and Kylo if it even came to that. But we don't know, because that's not how they ended up doing it. So I thought for our final little segment here, we can talk about um, our favorite Star Wars moment of the year since 2020 is thankfully coming to a close. Um, So that could be anything from, you know, it seems like forever ago that season seven of the Clone Wars happened. Um, I know Matt wants to say uh, the Martez sisters was his favorite moment of uh, of 2020, right? We we enjoyed Um, that though. Or it could even include, include anything. It can be, you know, the news drop we had a few weeks ago or anything. So um, I guess I'll start us off. So my favorite Star Wars moment of 2020 was chapter nine of The Mandalorian, the Marshal, the opener of this uh, of season two. And it was uh, it was such such perfect Star Wars, in my opinion, with just a small side adventure of Mando going to Tatooine and meeting up with Cobb Vanth, a character from just a book. And we finally going to finally going into live action. And that sort of kicked off this chain reaction of great cameos in season two of Mando. And just going to all the lore, the lore and Easter egg pokes, the, the, the crate dragon and the egg from Knights of the Old Republic that we see. And it, that was just, it was pure fun and just such a great adventure. I absolutely loved that. It was, it was so funny when Mando season two, uh, the first episode dropped because the only text I received that morning, it was uh, you as you were going to work. Uh, AJ, you texted me and you just said, I have a new character that I want to cosplay. And that was it. That's all I had going into the first episode, and I was, like, watching it, and within, like, the first, like, few minutes, I'm like, oh, I know who it's gonna be. It's gonna be Cobb Vanth. I literally have the Cobb Vanth, like, shirt, like, finished, like, sitting behind me right now while we're working on this podcast. So, it's, it's, it's come around, and I'm very, very excited that that was your top moment this year. I actually agree. Um, it's a, it was a toss-up for, like, the Siege of Mandalore. Um, I will never forget sitting down for that, and then the original Lucasfilm logo popping up and like my, the hair on my head just like, just blew off. Like it was, it was like, Oh my goodness. What is this? Uh, (laughs) The siege of Mandalore four parts could be edited into a movie. I wish Disney plus would just edit the siege of Mandalore into a long movie so that the clone wars begins and ends with a movie. But that's another complaint for another time. Um, The siege of Mandalore is great, but the Marshall blew me away. I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of The Mandalorian. I love season one. I know my dad was like right off the gate, absolutely just in love with The Mandalorian season one. I know a lot of people were. And I liked season one a lot. But there was something about season one that just felt like a tad 
off. And I think it was, you know, the budget wasn't as big as season two. The set, the, the volume hadn't been, in my opinion, fully, fully utilized. It still looked a little wonky, a little off. The effects were a little weird. Um, season two opens up with the Marshall and we see like the crate dragon and these incredible special effects that literally look like they were plucked right from a movie. I, when I tell you, I had no eyebrows after this episode was over because I was just totally and completely gone. <laughs> like the hair, my hair was gone from the Siege of Mandalore. The last of it, my eyebrows were gone after watching the Marshall. I tell you, I was floored with how good this episode looked with Cobb <laughs> Vanth being adapted from, you know, the books, which was just incredible. Like AJ already touched upon that, but that was just absolutely mind boggling. Uh, just to have those kinds of canon connections uh, it set us on the path for like an incredible Mando season two. It was perfect. So just jumping off of what you guys have both said, my favorite moment for Star Wars 2020 was uh, just falling in love with Mandalorian finally. For, for Mando season one, it just came in a bad time for, for me because it was the end of the sequel trilogy and I wanted to pour all of my enthusiasm into that and I wasn't ready to start absorbing in new content yet. I liked Mando season one and I enjoyed Mando season one, but I really wasn't like over the moon, like in love with it. Mando season two really just sold me, period. And that was just my favorite moment of 2020 for Star Wars was just allowing myself to absolutely love it. Which is incredible from everything from, from what you guys have said about the Marshall to Bogotan appearing in live action to even just learning that the child is named Grogu. It's just incredible. And with that, that is 2020 for the Holland Marauders. We've had a wonderful time getting our feet wet in our podcast this year, and we, we can't even begin to like express our thanks enough for you guys. We hope that you continue to listen to us next year as we're releasing more content. Maybe there'll be a little bit more Mandalorian chatter. I don't know how much more we're going to talk about it. You know, it's not like it's like the newest thing or whatever, but we're definitely be talking about that a little bit more. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Holland Marauders podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Holland Marauder. You can follow us on Instagram at Holland Marauders. And we also have a Patreon. Just search for Holland Marauders. Again, I want to thank you guys so much for listening to the Holland Up Marauders podcast. This is Jamie, and you'll be listening to AJ and Matt as well. We want to wish you a happy new year, and we look forward to having you guys around again in 2021.